John the Baptist must have been a remarkable man because without working any miracles or giving any show of political power, the people flocked to him in the desert. And they were so surprised by the force of his holiness and his preaching that they began to ask themselves, who is this? Could this be the Messiah, the Christ? And of course, John firmly denied it. He said, I am not the Messiah. There's one coming after than me who's greater than me, and I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And one of the ways that John sought to prove the superiority of Jesus to himself was by comparing the baptism that he brought with the baptism that Christ would bring. John said, I'm baptizing you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's baptism was powerful. It's called in the gospel a baptism for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it accomplished the forgiveness of sins. And yet by John's own estimation, it was nothing compared with the baptism that Christ would bring. It seems to me, and I wonder if you think this is true, that we as Christians tend to regard our own baptism as nothing more than John's baptism. That is to say, we recognize that it's, it forgives sins, but nothing more. Now, if that's all that it accomplished, it would still be a very great thing, because the forgiveness of sins is, is enormous. Imagine living in a world in which we had no hope for the forgiveness of sins. It would be like getting a spaghetti sauce on your shirt and never being able to change your shirt. Or, or having a debt looming over you that you knew you could never pay. It would be a terrible thing to be conscious of our sin and yet have no hope of forgiveness. And so if baptism was nothing more than John's baptism even today, it would still be a great and wonderful thing. And yet John says that the baptism that Christ brings is immeasurably greater. So what are the wonderful effects of the baptism that we've received from Christ? We can see them in a visible way in the baptism of Christ in the Jordan River. Because what happened to Christ there visibly and audibly is what happens in our soul invisibly and silently in the sacrament of baptism. So we have to set our eyes on Christ and see what, what happened to him there that day in the Jordan River? If we want to know what happens to us in our baptism. The gospel says that when Christ was baptized, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And that's precisely what happens invisibly in us, in our baptism. First, the heavens are opened. Paradise is regained. What was lost by Adam and Eve and what we lost by our own sin is given to us as a pledge and a promise from the moment of our baptism. Eternal life. The promise of heaven. Then he says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And that's what happens. That's what happened 
to us in the moment of our baptism. The Holy Spirit descended upon us, and henceforth we became temples of the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. It's hard to comprehend. St. Francis of Assisi used to kneel down before newly baptized infants because he said, the presence of God is there. The Holy Spirit dwells there. And then a voice from heaven was heard. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And that's what happens to us. Those words all of a sudden are directed to us as we're adopted as beloved sons and daughters of God the Father. And that's what I want to meditate upon tonight. This great gift that we receive in baptism of being adopted by God the Father. Jesus, the Father says to us now as he said to his son, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you I am well pleased. It's a truth too wonderful to take in. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us comprehend it. St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We can't comprehend it. Even when it's revealed to us by God, we need the Holy Spirit to come into our own souls and testify and convince us that this is true that we really are sons and daughters of God. Have you ever considered this? I'm sure you've heard it before, but have you ever believed it? That God is your father? That you're a son, a daughter of God? That's the truth that the Holy Spirit wants to convince us of. I think we find ourselves in a situation like King Arthur when he was a boy and he had no clue of his destiny. He never met his parents. He didn't know that he was destined to be a king. And so he thought he was just an ordinary boy until one day Merlin comes and tells him, boy, you have a destiny. You're a king. And he pulls the sword from the stone and how his vision of reality must have changed from that moment forward. Now when he goes out through the country, he sees it in a whole new way. This is my kingdom. This is my inheritance. And as he enters the palaces and the castles, as he meets the mighty knights who will fight for him, when he dons for the first time that armor, that royal armor, and all the while Merlin is by his side whispering, this is your kingdom. This is your inheritance. Don't you know you're a king? Tonight, the Holy Spirit wants to whisper the same thing to our hearts. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a co-heir with Christ. And God is your father. There are three attitudes that are proper, that belong to a son or a daughter of God. And the first is joy. It's the joy of knowing that you're loved, not only pitied, it's not that God just tolerates you or he puts up with you. 
He loves you. He delights in you. He loves to be with you. He loves to hear from you. He says in all seriousness, with you, I'm well pleased. Maybe you can remember in middle school finding out that the, the girl that you had a crush on likes you. Or maybe you don't remember that from middle school. Maybe middle school was rough. That, that might have been the case for probably most of us. Well, but when something like that happens, you think, me? I can't believe it. It's so good to be me. I, I can't believe it. And that's how we should feel when we discover the love of God for us. God will forgive using such a silly example, but all we have are small examples to speak of something so great, so infinite as the love of God. But that's how we should feel, this, this sense of surprise, like, me? It's so good to be me. I am loved by God. He delights in me. And He does. God delights in you as He delights in His only begotten Son. That this first attitude, this joy at knowing God's love for us, leads into the second, which is confidence. When you know that God is your Father, you can go out into the world with great confidence. You can take risks. You can fail. Because you know that God is on your side. You can take on, on tasks that are too great for you. Imagine you're a 10-year-old kid and you want to build a treehouse in your backyard. Well, if you're, at it, if you're going at it on your own, you might dream big, dreams, dream big dreams for a little bit, but then as soon as you nail three pieces of wood into the side of the tree, you're going to realize, okay, this project is too big for me. This is going nowhere. And you should probably settle for building a rope swing. But if you know that your dad is a skilled carpenter, and that he's more excited about building the treehouse than you are, well, you're going to dream of building palaces in the sky, and you're going to get to work at it. Well, God is more excited about your destiny than you are. And God is God, and he's on your side. He wants to bless you. He wants to open the way before you. He wants you to do great things. And so the one who knows that he's the son of God, the daughter of God goes out into the world with great confidence, takes, takes risks, tries great things, knowing that she can count on the blessing of God. The third and final attitude proper to a son or a daughter of God is joyful responsibility. You stop living like life like you're getting paid minimum wage by a boss you don't like. You look around and you say, this is family business. This is my inheritance. And that's how Jesus saw the world. He said, this world belongs to my Father. So I'm not going to stay at a safe distance and watch it fall apart. I'm going to get involved. And he did. He committed all the way. He left heaven, came to earth. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was baptized into our reality so that he could lift us up and rescue us. He had this profound sense of responsibility. He said, this is my father's world, and so it's mine, because all that's his is mine, and all that's mine is his. 
And so someone who knows that God is their father doesn't look at the world in the same way anymore. We can't look at the church and the world and the poor and say that's someone else's problem. No, not anymore. Not since we've been baptized, not since we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God the Father. It's our world, it's our church. Those are our poor. Because they're God's. So one experiences, one who knows that he's a son of God, goes out like Christ, brimming with joy and confidence, trusting in the blessing of God to work for the salvation of the world.